Welcome to HearthSpeak Podcast, conversations and recorded experiences on reclaiming our roots, connecting to our visions, and trusting our heart path. I'm your host, Megan, and I am here to share stories of healing, creativity, revival, and resilience for a time here on Earth right now, a time in which I feel we are in the midst of a profound cultural transformation. The hearth, as a source of warmth, is traditionally the central community gathering space where storytelling takes place. Our stories are sacred, and the stories we tell ourselves and others have the potential to shape and inform how we show up for this larger story. Thank you for being here and taking the time to listen. Hello everyone, I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Our first guest on Hearth Speak is Shante Sojourn Zenith. Shante weaves such beauty and magic into everything she does. She came into my life through our Open Hearth Permaculture Design Certification Program, of which she was part of in 2018. Through her work with sacred grief and remembrance of acknowledging our grief as a necessary aspect of healing, I have learned so much from Shante and am continuously inspired by how she lives out her deep connection to the earth and humanity by weaving words of poetic mystery and raw truth. Shante writes, in this time of ecological unraveling, I am called to the edges of rivers and the roots of trees, creating earth poetry to tend the ecology of our inner worlds. As an edge weaver, I create ritual spaces to practice not knowing together, witnessing our grief for what has been broken, weaving our imaginations back into relationship with the living earth. Well, I'm here today with the lovely Shante. And I just wanted to start off and ask you, Shante, about um, how you see yourself and how you want the others in the world to see you. What mm-hmm. you, you know, when you think about yourself, what comes to mind and what wants to be shared? Mm. I think the deepest thing is I just really want to be someone who listens and someone who can deeper connect to what is kind of underneath the surface of things and listen to the feelings underneath the words. Um, Yeah, kind of the thread that goes through all of my work is really around that, that sense of connectedness and that sense of belonging that comes when there's a a shift in perception and an opening in perception into this deeper kind of listening. And do you think the listening is translated through the art that you make and the way that like you paint these beautiful mandalas and draw and do you feel like that has any Hold any holds any weight to what you're speaking of? You know, the, the my art practices and the kind of facilitation things, the writing research I do, all of those are forms of listening. Um, or creating containers for other people to listen. And it, um, yeah, like when I sit by the water and I sing, because it feels like the listening is a way to to receive something and then to express something. Um, my teacher Frances Weller talks about this kind of joint need for containment and for release and the, these kind of two elements of, of what it means to be a living being 
in motion and kind of fully moving through cycles. And the, the practices of going to the water and just being with the water feels like it's a very resonant thing for you. Um, do you have any stories specifically surrounding water or just spending time with water? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm leaning back here. Um, <laughs> get comfortable. Getting comfortable. Um, so, and backtrack a little bit. So, as an artist, um, three years ago, I kind of had I'd been doing more performance art and more kind of product-focused things, and then I had this switch where I entered into an MFA program at Goddard College and was really wanting to um, wanting to be much more intuitive about what I was creating and wanting to connect my soul much more to what I was doing and out of that I started exploring like what are the practices for expressing that really really connect me to a deeper sense of self and um, one thing that I found I was traveling in England and ended up sitting by the ocean one day and watching the water and just like feeling sound want to just come up and I just started to sing and it felt like the the water was teaching me how to sing and there was just this this expansion that started to happen and then kind of over the the next couple of years I've been exploring that and what it means to go sit with water or go sit with trees and kind of through this listening and deep perception um, this attunement, or there's this word asthesis, which means exchange mm. of exchange of soul essence between beings. Sort of receive something um, from this elemental presence, and then be able to kind of be a vessel for that and express that. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, is you know, is that kind of the essence of the Earth Grief? project then as well like the the performance art surrounding kind of all of the grief you're holding from what's going on in, on the planet and what's being what's being seen yeah it feels like the um in that deeper perception the minute that we go under the surface of things and actually start to be in presence with the feeling quality of life, all of the wounds and all of the disconnection that has kind of been obscured by, by busyness and by kind of all the things we do to numb, the minute we start to listen, all of that comes up to the surface. And part of the practice actually of singing with trees and singing with water has been a listening to the, the way that other beings carry the memory almost much stronger than humans kind of carry this primary memory of what it means to be connected. And so that process of expressing that becomes a way of encountering the grief of living the rest of our lives so disconnected. There was a 
a time I was standing in a field of bluebells when I was trying to make the sound of the somehow find the sound that, that felt like it was moving with the bluebells. And I just kind of had this this thought about, you know, bluebells aren't self-conscious or, you know, things in the so-called natural world aren't self-conscious or don't censor their expression in the way that um, as humans in this kind of monoculture of colonialism and extraction that we live in today, we cut ourselves off from all of these primary sources of nourishment. Mm. And these times like spent, it sounds like these times spent out, you know, with the bluebells or just speaking and singing to the earth and being on the earth is really nourishing for you. Do you want to speak any more about nourishment and how you feel that humans can get more nourishment from the world we live in? Yeah, I think it is um, as simple as slowing down and as simple that just that process of attuning. You know, I mean, as children, like, you know, there's the, the talk of as children attuning to parents and, and learning this way of being mirrored by the world and seeing yourself in the world that helps us develop a deeper sense of self and helps us feel really secure and rooted. I think that there's a greater attunement that we lack in the, the monoculture um, of what it means to be mirrored by a body of water or what it means to be mirrored by a 200-year-old oak tree. And to realize that that depth of soul and kind of expanse of wildness is inside us also, and that our capacity for expression is that big. So we don't have, don't really have a lot of spaces in this culture to expand outside of kind of a very narrow form of so-called reality. Um, you know, there's sort of the habits of what we do every day and, and very cognitive. And there's this shift that happens when you start to realize that at the edges of the, the reality we've created are all of these larger possibilities that connect our imagination um, into, into ways that then when we start to think about, you know, the really deep wounds that we carry, you know, as a person of European lineage, the, the wounds that my ancestors carry and the violence my ancestors have enacted on other cultures and on the earth. Um, and then this living at this pivot point in time where it feels like everything's unraveling and we're kind of stuck in the same patterns it feels like if we're able to look to the edges and listen in a deeper way and shift our perception, then our imagination can open for, for other forms of intelligence to come in and for other answers to come in, which would be just not, would be completely unknown within kind of the current paradigm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I really resonate with that. And I, I 
can't help but think like when you're talking about edges, you know, I immediately just go right to your new title that you <laughs> created for yourself and your new website. And I just really like just reading it, I got so many chills um, because I, I really, I love talking about like these edge space spaces or um, people that kind of live on the edges or work within the edges, you know, kind of in the background, but doing this really deep work um, that might not be looked upon, you know, through mainstream society because it isn't what we see every day, but it's like in the, in the shadows and the corners and it's, it's there and it's becoming more and more realized. But I think all of your work is so powerful in the way that it is so much, you know, there's so much depth to it and it's, it feels like it's almost buried like in the roots of the ground in a way and it's like held there and it and it's waiting to to blossom and have the seeds and have it and spread all over and more and more people are waking up to the realization of wow we need to like share our grief and we need to express our grief and yeah I would love to hear more about so I would love to hear more about you know what earth poet edge weaver is and what that means and like what that title is for you and then if you would like to talk more about grief um specifically like the grief ritual and mm -hmm. um the practices you've been doing with grief so the earth poet edge weaver um came to me like a month ago i was in a group of people and we were talking about what the thread that we carry through the world is, and the words edge worker came out of my mouth. I um, had heard them in a talk by Charles Eisenstein, mm. and worker didn't feel right, and as I kind of sat with it over the next couple of weeks, weaver felt much more connected. And I'm still really finding out what that means for me, but I needed something, I felt like I needed a... Um, a naming that could encompass the various strands of my work and kind of the, the poetic writing I do and the the research I do of, of weaving together all these multidisciplinary threads um, and the performance and the kind of space holding um, and so the they're both about listening. They're both about um, what it means to be attuned to something deeper. And there's um, there's this feeling in it of, of wanting to be kind of an ancestral bard where that the ones who would would listen to the wild or the mythic and then would somehow bring that back and so I think the earth poet in a way is, is about listening to the wild and the elemental and allowing my body to be a vessel to, to distill that and share that and bring that back into the village. And then I think the edge weaver is about bringing the village back to the wild and about inviting people to meet their own edges and go to those places which feel 
outside of the realm of the the ordinary or the um, this the known outside of the realm of, of kind of what they think their identity is um, or what they think reality is um, because as soon as you get to an edge of something and we talk about in permaculture that when the edges meet there's this explosion of flourishing that happens because you have these two ecosystems that start to collaborate with each other um yeah so that was that was kind of and i had originally i'd been working with the name earth grief um as a project to describe the work i was doing um and i wanted i wanted to that felt like it wasn't a name I could carry on my own mm. because it just, the, the phrase earth grief feels, I mean, obviously so big that to kind of just take that as I'm the only person who can carry that doesn't feel appropriate. Mm. Um, and so that I still have that website, um, earth grief, which I'll be, I think opening eventually as a, as a container for, um, collaboration mm-hmm. and for a, more of a, a larger conversation about that but it felt like for my work I didn't really want it under my name either um, it felt like there needed to be kind of a, a, a dislocation like a separate space that was mm-hmm. there so earth poet edgeweaver felt like opening up a new kind of dilation of reality mm-hmm. in which to play <laughs> Well, I think it's so beautiful and I really, it, I love it. And it's so mysterious too, you know, <laughs> it, it really does feel like, I like picture you like in the forest, like connecting with the spirits and the animals and the plants. And then, you know, really it's like solitude work, right? Like it, or mm-hmm. solitary work in a way, like you're in, mm. you're in that space and you're, you're doing that deep work within yourself, but you're also then you're talking about the aspect of, you know, bringing people out to the wild spaces. So there is that level of community. So it, it just sounds like it's an all encompassing weaving of self work and community work. And I think it's also the, I mean, so much of my work is about the ecology of the inner world. Mm. Um, and that the wild spaces are, profoundly inside ourselves also and that the there's a poem i have um inside you also are the deepest roots of trees Mm. the undercurrents of rivers vast and swirling (laughs) and just the sense that we contain and mirror everything that is in the earth because we're also a part of the earth Mm. um and that part of the reconnection that we're, that's kind of this, our longing and the loneliness that we feel so often in this culture is an, an adumbration or like a, a before echo of this, this need to reconnect to something deeper. Yeah, it sounds like you, I mean, you've mentioned listening so many times. It's like the the theme, you know, it's like, how do we reconnect? We listen, you know, we listen to the earth, we listen to the water, we listen to the people, we listen to ourselves. And that just seems like 
something that's really taken hold on you and has really made you kind of be able to go into these spaces and really do this work in a real way. And it sounds like it's always evolving. Yeah, it is constantly <laughs> changing. Yeah. The, the listening, that particular piece came from a theater maker, Simon McBurney, um, who did this incredible performance called The Encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, just the way he created it was very much kind of what I love of this this weaving of all of these different inspirations and imaginings and stories and memories and explorations of time and that was he gave a talk back after one of the shows and and somebody asked him what's the one thing that people need to take away about this time and he said that we listen and he also um shared a a quote from john berger which has been a really like really deep guiding force for me around this idea of the poetic because the poetic which isn't just language, it, it really is a kind of attunement, a kind of mythic, imaginal attunement to the earth um, that, that goes below the cognitive um, into deeper relational way of perceiving. Um, but the, the quote is, um, unlike stories, uh, Poetry crosses the battlefield, tending to the wounded, listening to the wild monologues of the triumphant or the fearful. It brings a kind of peace, not through anesthesia or easy reassurance, um, but through recognition and the knowledge that what has been experienced cannot disappear as if it had never been. And there's just this sense of that it's actually the listening or the witnessing, which is kind of this, it, it is this form of creating a container around something, um, creating a relationship with something that is what allows, like the relationships are really what allows us to exist in a deeper way mm-hmm. and what allows us to grow. Because I think we really can't, as isolated individuals, there's only so far we can grow and it's really not possible to do any kind of healing or any transformational work if you're looking at yourself as a as a kind of solitary bubble. Mm-hmm. I think so much of the the transformation and the spaciousness really comes from connection. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tea clinking. Tea, tea clinking. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking too about, you know, do you have anything you like to say to people when, you know, if you're asked from people, you know, how do I go about connecting in this deep way or how do Mm. I go about relating or, you know, like hearing messages from the earth, you know, do you have any insight on that or is that just something that comes naturally to you or you know for someone who might not have the same level of of like deeper listening I I guess a gift in that way I think it's just about trusting that that is inside you because that you are a part of the earth and you each being carries this particular thread of connection which they came into this world 
quiz and is a way to weed themselves back in. And I think actually probably the deepest way to find where that lives for you is to, to really kind of listen to the edges of yourself and to those places, you know, it might be loneliness, it might be what might be called depression in this culture, which there's a whole, I'd love to talk about that actually, this whole thing of depression and grief and how similar, how entangled they are. But those places, or even the, you know, what we, you know, we call like the shadow parts, like when you get irritated about something or when you feel profoundly unsatisfied with the way your life is or with what's happening in the world, there's the, they're kind of the facts of that and the, you know, the, the story we operate in. And then underneath the story, there's a feeling. And as you're able, and it's a practice, I like, I'm like not an expert, not a teacher. I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm just, this is, and this is only my partner, Simon, like is awesome. I am talking about that. No one can really teach anything other than what resonates with them. And people will receive what they receive, but then it is, it has to come from their own experience. But I think it is really that um, through attending to whatever that edge feeling is and going, allowing, giving yourself permission to stay with it and be curious about it and trust it. And let the story just kind of exist, but also go underneath that story, you know, if it's anger about somebody or if it's even a feeling like you can't connect, underneath that story is a feeling. And the more that you can just listen to that feeling and witness that, the more that you will start to kind of allure and invite in those deeper curiosities and perceiving parts of yourself back. Because the truth is that we live in a culture where we get hurt for having that kind of sensitivity. And we get, even like when we're really young, you know, I think pretty much everyone comes into the world with their heart wide open. And with a sense of curiosity and a sense of wonder and creativity. And we live in a culture which is so terrified of that because the adults around us have learned that to experience things like grief or playfulness or even to like be really sensitive to other people's emotions will hurt you. And so I think there's an aspect of that kind of out of their need to protect and out of what happened to them, they try and shut that down. And then we, you know, live in kind of a culture, an educational culture where like you go to school and all of the ways in which we reach out beyond ourselves and connect are severed and kind of have to just to survive and to function in that environment. You, you, you kind of have to numb things. And there's this beautiful um, relationship between the word anesthesia, that mm -hmm. numbing, and um, um, the word aesthesis, um, which is this exchange of soul essence or this, beautiful, this beauty. 
And so the, the, the anesthesia is actually the absence of beauty, the absence of the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And we live in a culture which exiles beauty because... I think it has a lot to do with trauma, and it has a lot to do with not... not being able to see the sacredness in things because we've lost the sacredness in ourselves. Um, anyways, that whole... <laughs> As you see, I speak in a very mycelial way. I'm not a very linear person. Of course. Um, um, I think that... The core of that really is around that... Whenever any of us, and I, I feel this a lot too, whenever there's a sense of like, I know there's a part of myself that's not fully online or not fully doing what I'm meant to be doing here. That, that knowledge of, of brokenness or that knowledge of kind of... Um, resistance is so profoundly cultural and contextual and it's it needs to be held with really deep tenderness mm. it really needs to be held with the sense that actually just by listening to it it will start to open I really admire your vulnerability here and just speaking so many truths that often, you know, aren't really allowed to be present, I would say, or like welcomed in many spaces. But I think a lot of people are trying and I would love to, you know, go deeper a little bit if you're willing to talk about, you know, you mentioned depression and grief. Yeah, that was what I was yeah. just thinking. I would love to, because that's actually, when you were asking me about grief, mm-hmm. I arrived through at my own desire to work with grief. I arrived at through depression. Mm-hmm. And I don't really say that a lot. Um, but I feel like that's actually really profoundly important. Because in the absence of spaces where we're allowed to and here, and then here's kind of where I want to next. In the absence of spaces to fully express our emotion and the vastness of our being, um, we have to numb things or push things away or kind of suppress things. And that's when depression kind of comes in. Um, I think is is definitely a part of it. And there's so many. I mean, it's such a not, you know, this is kind of my own experience of it, and so it's not what I'm dancing with with it right now, but I think it, I think we live in a culture which prefers to pathologize individuals instead of to look at contexts, mm-hmm. and that just the phenomenon of depression or what we call mental illness has a profoundly societal aspect to it and a profoundly historical aspect to it 
and just even of just thinking of having spent hundreds of years in a very, very disconnected way of life, shutting out so many parts of our perception, um, there's just, there's kind of a fundamental lack that exists. And then adding to that is that our culture does not have healthy ways to process trauma. Mm. And so, um, in traditional or indigenous cultures, ritual and initiation are, are foundational aspects of what it means to live in community and to create culture. And so, like, you know, you know, the simple things like the transition from adolescence into an adulthood is marked with an initiation, which involves a transformation and involves a, an experience of expanding beyond an isolated self into this, this wider perception. Um, and also involves you know, in various ways, like, you know, fasting or um, kind of initiatory rituals that people would go through. It involves an encounter with trauma that is contextual and that is contained within a culture. And so part of initiation is actually learning a way to allow grief and trauma to move through your body. Mm. Um, so if you think about growing up in a culture which actually would teach you healthy ways to process grief and healthy ways to process emotion and to express the, the deepest kind of core around trauma, which is as you know, biological beings we experience in very similar ways to you know how other biological beings experience it, um, is that it, it moves and it has waves and it has a it has a trajectory it's not meant to be frozen and that same lack of beauty and lack of motion um, lack of expression in our culture you know is what like keeps us from crying it's what keeps us from feeling like there's safe places to actually name when we're uncomfortable or name when there's a part of us that feels profoundly unfulfilled. Um, and so with grief work, um, like Frances Weller's grief rituals or the grief rituals that um, Maladoma and Sobon Fusome brought from the Degara people of Burkina Faso, um, which is an intact indigenous culture um, that still practices those ways of being in connection there's this ability to be in a, a, a container of this village and then to have this relationship with whatever this larger presence is, whether you know, we call it the sacred or the earth or the ancestors. And somehow with the holding of the village and the ability to connect to this deeper container, this, this, this larger being, um, our expression um, and the, that energy of, of trauma or grief that flows through us 
um, has a place to go and it doesn't feel overwhelming when we're isolated in our grief or when we're trying to process an emotion on our own, I think so often it's, it just feels like this bottomless pit. Um, but with, with this content, with this ritual context, there's a way that you start to feel how your body actually knows what it means to, to lament and what it means to let emotion move through you. Um, and then there's kind of backtracking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, um, depression kind of feels like the very, okay, I'll speak personally because this is, this was a big thing f for me. I had a experience a, a year and a half ago where I, um, growing up, I guess I have to backtrack even but see this is the contextual part of it. <laughs> there's the moment when you're 18 when you walk into the doctor's office and say I'm crying all the time what do I do and they say take this bottle of things and you'll feel better because um, you have a you know, neurological neurotransmitter imbalance and then there's the context of that that you know at that time in my life I was living in a one-bedroom apartment with my mom um, who was having ongoing chronic pain and my grandmother who um, had early onset dementia and my mom had just lost her job and so you know I mean they're just all of these factors you know with it and I was working like 60 hours a week with school and with other things to not be in the house um, that make just just telling someone oh this is a chemical imbalance without looking at what's happening in their life that would be causing that um, it's really heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go from here. If I want to go back or if I want to go forwards. Um, backwards is my kind of pivotal experience of trauma growing up. Um, because I was I was homeschooled and I actually in some ways had the gift of really retaining my curiosity and my sense of wonder and my own agency as a child more than I think a lot of other people did who went to more traditional schools. Um, and so in that way, I, growing up, I had a lot more spaciousness. Um, but I also was, um, my mom had cancer when I was nine and then the year after that, continued to have chronic pain um, and her kind of whole support system was so burned out at this point that they just didn't know what to do and started telling her that the pain she was feeling was in her head. Mm. Um, and so she felt so shamed by the community of people that had, had really shown up and supported her during the cancer, you know, suddenly telling her that, you know, she was lazy and should be able to, you know, push through and go back to work. Um, that she pretty much kind of pulled us out of the community we were in and we were semi-homeless for a year and um, she went into the psych ward at one point because she was so depressed she you know, wanted to drive off a bridge with me in the car and got put on antidepressants at that point um, 
and then a month later her hip broke and surprisingly the chronic pain she'd been experiencing was that the radiation had damaged her hip and none of the doctors like thought to look or check that um but that kind of year in my life and what I watched modeled from her and her trauma as she tried to navigate that without any support besides me um as a nine-year-old ten-year-old um that was a really kind of pivotal experience, I think, in what I'm doing now. Because then, moving forward from that, when I started to have symptoms of depression, which for me is, I think the, the way that I kind of feel it most is like, or have felt it most is like this feeling of dread and just this, this intense ache that won't go away and that just kind of starts to turn my like collapse my whole body inward and like my skin starts to feel transparent like I'm you know I can't actually fully kind of protect myself from the energies like moving around me um and it's really hard to kind of have any motivation to do anything or feel any sense of self um, so that, around the time I started claiming my own art practice three years ago, I started to research trauma and I started to explore what was causing my, my creative blocks and the ways I was censoring myself or the ways I felt shame and realized how connected that was to my, my wounds around expressing emotion. Um, and that the same voice that I would sing with, you know, was also the voice I would cry with, and that there were certain sounds, or like there's this break in my range, um, that I was afraid to, to make ugly sounds, because I kind of had this feeling of how big I could be, or how too much I could be, um, and so I didn't want to go there in a creative sense, um, because it felt so on the edge of this grief that I couldn't name. Um, so I've, since then, I've, I feel like I've kind of begun a process of trauma healing. I've worked with a somatic therapist and um, done kind of a lot of intuitive movement things. And a lot of my work has really been around what it means to start to actually have relationships with other people because I really didn't learn to do that growing up and I spent a lot of time having kind of like professional interactions with people like in theater or in you know different things I was doing and really wanting to be seen on a soul level but not not knowing how to show myself and not feeling like anyone would be there to receive that like that wouldn't be welcome and that really was kind of what started. I worked with a group of mentors for 10 years from the time I was 14 to the time I was 24. And um, they were incredible theater creators. I loved them, they were my family. I don't think I'd be alive without that direction in my life and that connection with them. But I also realized they 
what they were doing, they weren't really able to engage on an emotional level. And the kind of the professional boundaries of that made that not a place where I could actually be seen. So the, um, you know, my journey with trauma and depression and these different things, depression also really has been loneliness for me. Um, and this really, really deep longing for a sense of self and a sense of connection that I just hadn't experienced in daily life. I'd only kind of seen it manifested in other people or in books I'd read or, um, so anyways, um, that's about a year and a half ago, I tried to get off of the antidepressant I'd been taking for five years, um, and at the same time decided to do a semester of deep soul work, um, and really spend a semester in mourning. And the universe, um, I think, supported me a little too much in that because <laughs> at that particular moment, all of my personal relationships kind of disintegrated and all of these crises happened and I was put into what did feel like a kind of initiation, not a one I'd recommend, a very unheld initiation um, into this kind of complete loss of self and complete loss of any meaning or any direction of just this feeling of like how I'm living is not how I, I can't live like this anymore. And I later learned, um, which feels really important and really complexifies everything that for those of us who got put on antidepressants, um, it's not just as simple as going, oh, my trauma contributed a lot to my depression and I probably shouldn't have been put on an antidepressant. I probably should have like actually been given support for my trauma. Therefore, I can get off of the antidepressant and I'll be fine. Um, and the difficulty with that is that, at least for me, I really found that like my brain had been kind of over five years completely adapted to having this other substance. And so I was in withdrawal for six months and I, tapered the way the doctors recommended, which is over a couple weeks, and bodies generally really shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I ended up actually um, taking another antidepressant, which I'm still on, and now I'm kind of in this more intentional journey with, of this is something I that my brain seems to need right now in order to function without um, kind of completely collapsing out of my window of tolerance. Um, and I also really would like to be at a point where my body is resilient enough and my support system is resilient enough that I can transition off of that onto kind of something that, that feels more But I do, I do feel like there's a, there are elements of me I'm really curious to see what they'd be like without kind of a pharmaceutical substance. Um, but anyways, that, I feel like that was important to share just because 
I felt so much shame about that journey and so much isolation and so much curiosity too because I feel like a lot of people have experiences of being on antidepressants or being in some way kind of pathologized by the medical system and um, there are very few spaces um, there's a website called the withdrawal project which is really interesting um, and they're starting to be some um, kind of patient advocacy spaces that are actually looking at um, what it means to taper in a safe way and like what the much larger support system needs to be for that but that whole experience which I'm kind of still inside of really was humbling for me and really showed me a lot about how entangled and complex things are and how they don't have like a simple <laughs> a simple right or wrong answer how much it is contextual within our own lives mm. there's so much richness there <laughs> that I just wow I mean I just think about your journey and how incredible it is just to speak that aloud and how important it is that we have spaces to express and share and just understand that it it is just such a process right it's a never-ending process a never-ending journey <laughs> and it is so contextual and it is so you know experiential in the way that we all have our own experiences and our own explorations that shape us and and nurture us and help us to kind of move into you know what we truly want to do and I just like get from you this sense of like you know you want to be doing work in the world that just feeds you and just like helps your soul <laughs> and just <laughs> is <laughs> tea break. Tea break. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing because I, I really do. I also really feel like that for myself, you know, just mm -hmm. hearing the parallels of your journey and, and in my own way, I've kind of come through like all of these very fascinating and complex initiations that I've had to almost create myself and right. almost like cultivate um through just different people I've met or different situations I found myself in or different practices I was working on at the time. And I just think, wow, yeah, I've come so far in just the way that now I feel like there is the way that my emotions can be expressed because they're, they're outlets for it now. You know, mm -hmm. you can make art, you can, yeah. you can go be with the water, right? You can they, go be in ritual. The anchor practices. Mm -hmm are so important mm -hmm. and I'm still I mean I'm kind of in a big way just finding that out in the last couple of months after being in kind of a turbulent intense time holding space for my partner who was, was suicidal for a while and is now kind of stabilizing mm -hmm. but just the the role of being a holder of space for somebody um yeah the the necessity of I mean for me I'm starting to try and just meditate a little bit each morning and to to sit with this kind of beauty altar that I have mm -hmm. and, and and pray to the sacred and the earth each evening. Mm -hmm. And just like just even that is 
invited in all of these synchronicities and just this this sense of like oh there's a there's a sense of self and there's a sense of rootedness that I really want to cultivate so that everything can swirl around and you know turn over and transfigure but there's still something that stays mm-hmm. yeah do you have like one thing that is your most I don't know, rooted or grounded practice or the thing that you kind of find yourself coming back to over and over again? Or does it kind of shift as you... It shifts. And I think that's actually been very hard for me because I have so many things that I love and I don't seem... Like the kind of this this new sort of this daily practice of this meditation in the morning and, and kind of this oka time in the evening took me I for three years I tried to have a daily practice and I couldn't because it felt like I loved writing and I loved drawing and and actually I think the most rooted practice has been I draw these kind of unfolding mandala like Mm. things Mm -hmm. um and that's been the thing and I think I actually have kept coming back to that because I hadn't I didn't put pressure on myself to do it it just there's something about that kind of meditative space of like listening to an audiobook or something and and this drawing that helps but there's there's kind of a deeper level of rootedness I'm still really trying to cultivate mm-hmm. I think yeah aren't we all yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm like what is my thing <laughs> I think it I think there's something about how it kind of involve revelation mm-hmm. um or just really making yourself visible to yourself in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether that's like intuitive dance or singing or writing or just something where you, at the end of it, you feel kind of opened out into discovering something about yourself that you didn't really know at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And just, I think of, you know, ways of moving grief too, right? What yeah. is it, writing singing, dancing, um, drawing, painting, all of those expressive arts that things are like moving through you into, you know, through your body, through the paper, through whatever medium you're using. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the word grief and I'm just thinking, you know, like, wow, we we kind of have a sense of what right. we feel around it, but maybe not everyone knows, like, you know, like, what is grief? It's a really <laughs> triggering word for it people. It, it is. When I did, I've been exploring it in performance um, mm. for a couple of years now, and I did a performance where the first line was, I'm here to talk about grief. Mm. And the entire audience, I could just feel everybody shut down. <laughs> like, no, we're not, not going there, no. And so... <laughs> After a couple nights of doing that, going, crap, this is, like, supposed to be a humorous show, you know, with playfulness involved, and, you know, this is not working, because they're not going to go with if the first moment they shut down. I started wearing a clown nose. Um, mm-hmm. I have a background in clowning. Um, I started, and so, and when I entered the stage wearing a red nose and said, I'm here to talk about grief. Everybody laughed and kind of opened up and got curious. So it feels like there's grief and shame. Um, 
Frances Weller talks about that grief and love are sisters. Mm -hmm. And I think in this culture, grief and shame are sisters. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Cause I mean, shame is, shame is, shame is the edge place. I think shame is exactly what kind of makes the boundary of where we don't want to go because it doesn't feel safe. Um, and yet what's so devastating about that is that it's this protector energy. It's like there's, there's, there's something really tender and precious and vulnerable about us that needs to be protected. Um, and when we, when we carry shame, I mean, that's another way... <laughs> Not to keep going back to depression, but <laughs> here we are. That's another way that depression, um, like especially that kind of dark night of the soul time a couple, you know, a year and a half ago for me, um, I'd watch these narratives that would come up when I didn't have any energy. I'd watch like this narrative of like, you're lazy, you should be doing stuff, you're just, you know, you're not, you're worthless. Um, and, um, there's a um, Denae Elder, Pat McCabe, who um, talk about how those voices are actually PTSD. Like those shame voices, Francis Weller calls them the predator. He talks about it as this archetypal energy that's actually this initiatory energy that is asking us to connect and to protect the parts of ourselves that are the most fragile. And to, to really embody their beauty. Um, so anyways, but um, grief. I think that's the other thing is that it, when I talk about grief, grief almost isn't, it's not sadness. Sadness feels different and it's, there's a sense in which it, I mean, grief can be, grief is not just tears. The way that I've witnessed grief in myself and in others in grief rituals, um, it can be anger. It can be, it can be this, you know, this, like, anger is this beautiful desire to protect something. This fierce desire for the sacredness of, of life. Um, and, um, you know, it can be fear, it can be terror, it can be numbness. Like, all of those, all of those are kind of like the, the smoke, or not the smoke, the, the mist, like the hot air, visible hot air coming off of this, this water of grief. That it really is this, um, this paradoxical feeling of everything that we love and everything that's so broken at the same time. It really, it, it grief is a, and Stephen Jenkinson called grief a skill, mm -hmm. that it's not actually really an emotion, it's a skill of, of honoring skill of naming our connectedness to life um, 
actually maybe this is a way to look at it too. I've really been feeling like grief itself is an initiation. And that especially, oh, and that's the other part of it. Um, and that's actually kind of the translation part of it. Because I think people in this culture, we talk about grief as like a stagnant thing or, or a, a feeling state. And because of my work with ritual, grief to me is not stagnant. Grief is actually the motion of the, the emotion, the motion of feeling. Mm. And grief is, um, you know, Francis Weller talks about it, is this wild presence that deranges us and reshapes us into something completely different. So it is, it is actually the, the energy that moves through us um, and reshapes us when we can listen and express from the core. And how is how is grief related to joy? <laughs> That's like my favorite. I love that. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to hear your take on that. It's it's so. I mean, grief and love are sisters. Grief and beauty are sisters. Grief and joy. Um, how can we see the beauty in anything if we're not? I mean. Actually, put it this way. To see the beauty in something is to see also the fragility of it. And in any relationship or in any 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 place that we encounter beauty and encounter joy, we're encountering this necessity to savor something that won't be there in the next moment in the same way. And so it, um, after doing grief rituals, um, after dancing with grief in, in different ways, I feel like my capacity for, for joy and for seeing beauty, for seeing aliveness, is so much expanded. And it has a lot also to do with that expression and that, that making visible of the tenderest parts of us because the the, ten, the the most precious tender vulnerable parts of ourselves you know which are also the the, the parts that as as children we're told are not welcome um and there is a very kind of childlike quality to those parts those are the parts that have the perceptive capacity to see beauty and so whenever we grieve, we're, we're ripening those parts and we're, we're showing the, the tenderness in ourselves that it's safe to be there and it's safe to see the beauty in the world. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then... I really, I really do want to just hear a little bit about about ritual and grief <laughs> ritual, and just you know what that paint a picture, you mm. know, a brief picture. I know that it's more no, involved. I've brief, had, but yeah. yeah, I've had the privilege of being in one, but I think it would be really, yeah, really lovely to share what that looks like and what that. It depends feels. on. I mean, it, they're different kind of forms, but the structure, the basic structure. I, talked about it a little bit earlier is this 
being embedded in a village. So being with a community of people, um, you know, it could be three other people, it could be 30 or more, but being with a community of people who are committed to being vulnerable with each other. Um, and this, there's a directionality to ritual. This is why it's different than therapy. Um, because with therapy, there's kind of the sense that it's going back and forth, going between, you know, the patient and the therapist. And so I've had experiences like, um, doing somatic experiencing work where, um, I'll have grief come up and I'll share some of it and then I'll kind of, you know, there's this thing about titrating and not kind of exploding too much into it at one time so your body can manage it. But I think that it also is about the, a single person holding space for you doesn't have a lot of capacity to be present with, with a very expansive expression. And so in the ritual setting with a larger group of people, um, and then with a, some form of portal or um, orientation to something bigger than the human. Because that's, that's what makes it ritual, is this sense of the human standing and encountering presence bigger than than something that we can kind of construct with our minds um which was i mean in that that's so much of the loss of sacredness in this culture and so much of all of the brokenness has to do with this loss of this living vital sense of the sacred um and so anyway so the um this so in, for example, in Frances Weller's um, rituals, the village stands on one side of the room and is singing. Um, and on the other side of the room is this giant beauty altar, grief altar, and there are bowls of water and there are bright flowers and, you know, objects of beauty that people have brought and objects of symbolizing grief that people have brought. And when it's time for someone to grieve, they cross the space um, and um, someone is drumming in the middle of the space and there's some, you know, gatekeepers there just kind of just watching the whole room and checking on everyone. And so when someone goes to grieve, they cross to the altar and a person from the village comes with them with their container and sits behind them. And so that as you grieve, you know there's someone right there who's just completely focusing on you, who can be there just energetically, or if you need touch, they can hold you, they can offer you Kleenex, they can, you know, whatever you need to be supported when you're grieving, they can be there. Um, but then the relationship is between you and this altar, this portal into the sacred. And that's where, that's the key aspect of it, because that's the place where you're able to express something into a presence which is bigger than you. And your 
your emotion can flow through you in a way that is impossible to do if it's just kind of two people talking to each other because you're not giving it to another person to try and hold on to you're you're letting it go and um my teacher azul valerie tomei who i um, studied a form called the grief composting circle with um, which has a different structure people sit in a circle and there's a altar in the center and in the center is this bowl of water which is 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 the container the grief is going into she talks about the grief being a gift to the earth and um the degra people say that the the tears are the food for the ancestors so there's also this sense that our the movement of our emotion and the release of our emotion into something bigger we're releasing it so that it can be received by the earth and it can be composted it can be transformed and that it actually is a form of food and part of it honestly feels like to me that um there's this mythologist martin shaw who says there was once a time when at night we would sing the moon into the sky and in the morning we would dance up the sun and there was this sense that humans had a responsibility to collaborate with the ongoing mattering of the earth and that if we stopped doing those ritual acts the earth would stop existing and things would start to disintegrate you know and people would love to call that superstition but it's happening you know and so there's this sense that the flow of grief back to the earth and the appropriateness of allowing our emotional expression to be given back to something bigger is actually something that's feeding the ongoing mattering of life and creating the compost within which beauty can grow. Mm. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah, and so this conversation, you know, this this podcast is all about you know, speaking with people about matters of the heart, mm-hmm. you know. Hearth is such a powerful word that we hold dear, you know, it encompasses like heart and here and earth and art and probably more that I'm not thinking <laughs> of. It's just a really, you know, in the, in the potency of the hearth, you know, the, I think of just tending to, you know, my mm. inner hearth and my spirit and how I want to like take care of that flame so it can grow and it can provide nourishment elsewhere mm-hmm. and I would just love to hear about you know it can be very succinct if you want <laughs> like you know like how you how you see yourself as a hearth tender mm. hmm. yeah it just feels like the I mean, there's something for me about hearth tending is about like keeping alive this energy and this this ability to nurture. And also, I was thinking about this that the hearth there's this relationship between um, how people, especially women, would keep the hearth as like this way of bringing this very wild presence in. Um, and allowing it to be what we live with and what, what actually sustains us. And so 
kind of in a similar way to tending grief um, or, or bringing in poetry in the wild. It's like, you know, I mean, fire can be so destructive. Fire is this like wild, raging force of energy, you know, I mean, you know, talk about it as like anger a lot of the time or this, um, there's this incredibly beautiful intimacy with taking a small piece of that. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate edge weaving in mm -hmm. a way. It's like taking a very small piece of this raging presence and bringing it into the center of your home and allowing that to be what cooks your food and what sustains you and tending that and keeping it alive. Um, that is kind of, an, that really, in a way, becomes an apprenticeship to the wild and to our own, you know, I mean, the same fire could burn the house down if it's not tended, mm -hmm. or the same fire could go out and suddenly there would be no way to, to cook food or to sustain yourself. So there's something about the tending of our inner fire and our inner hearth that keeps us in relationship with this wild aliveness that we're inside of, but in a, in a very intimate, gentle, nurturing way. Well, thank you so much for being here with me and talking with me, Shante. It's been so amazing and I would love if you could just share with everyone you know how we can mm. connect with you and how we can support you and just anything you'd like to share on that thank you so much yeah. this was just a magical event that we didn't you know <laughs> as always kind of a practice for me has really been around not knowing together mm -hmm. and letting letting what's meant to be here emerge mm -hmm. without trying to kind of control it or think that, like, I could possibly imagine how magical it could be. Yes, I constructed very, it in my mind. Very emergent. Like, yes. Yeah. As it should Shante be. Shante didn't know what I was going to ask no. her. <laughs> I mean, Megan I, didn't said, I didn't know what I was Megan going to say. Megan sent me a text saying, you want to do a podcast in a couple days? And I was like, okay. And then she showed up and was like, okay, we're doing a podcast. We're here. We're doing it. We're, we're just speaking. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And <laughs> we're sipping tea. I love and, it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um... I guess coming back to you, yeah. Yes, there... yes, I will talk about that. <laughs> I'm like, what are um, you talking about? So please visit my website, mm. which is www.earthpoetedgeweaver.com. Um, and at present, it's currently February, and I know this will be coming out in a couple of months, and, but I think I'll still be in kind of the same space. I'm in a very kind of hearth-tending time around looking at the previous artwork I've created and really exploring how to refine it and reach a point where it can be shared. And so um, I'm creating a Patreon, which I'm hoping will kind of help support that that work of inner attending until I'm, I'm ready to share things. Um, so there's a Patreon, which is Patreon slash earthpoetedgeweaver.com or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there'll probably still be, um, there'll be some opportunities to participate in um, an essay journey, um, which is 
it's called initiation into a living earth and is exploring how in a time of ecological unraveling we can learn to weave ourselves back in mm. um yeah and that's a place to start and i don't know I, it's actually really lovely to say like i don't know yeah what's gonna happen in the next couple of months but something will well i'm excited for it yeah <laughs> i mean theoretically by mid-year there should be a book of poetry yeah. And there should be a performance that starts touring. So. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Shanti's written um, her thesis actually on a lot of these topics. And I know that. Yeah. Have... Well, that's the essay journey. Right. Yeah. Yes. So that's going to be broken up into different yes. different chunks. So that can be followed along with. And So basically go to the website and hopefully my future self in a couple of months will will have things together and we'll know exactly how to participate. Yeah, it'll be all right there laid out. Yes. <laughs> well, so great. Thank you so much again Thank you and so much. looking forward to continue this cup of tea with you after. Yes. <laughs> so